So welcome everybody to City Church. I appreciate you being here. We're continuing in our sermon series on practical theology. So this is what we've been going over the past couple weeks, okay? Now before I talk about anything whatsoever that is important or related to Scripture, I'm going to tell you a story, right? So please bear with me. This will come back, but you won't. Hey, I even forgot I put that slide in there, but it works out well. I like story time. I promise this will come back at a future point, all right? So who here would guess that at one point in my life, I was somewhat of an athlete? The ones of you who know me can say yes. The ones of you who look at me now say, athlete, that's pretty nice to say. I was in the chess club, but fun story, my entire high school wrestling team was our chess club. We played chess, and what we did was we would show up in bandanas and cut off shirts and sit down across from the chess people and play chess with them. And we lost horribly every time, but it was wonderfully fun. Anywho, I used to be an athlete. I wrestled, I played soccer, uh, and I played the positions that made you run in soccer a lot. I was often a midfielder. Uh, though I also, fun story, ran more for wrestling than I ever did for soccer. That one always cracked me up. My wrestling conditioning required me to run more than my soccer conditioning did. Because wrestling wanted me to be able to jog for a long time. Wrestling wanted me to be able to sprint for six minutes. Okay? I went to school in Manchester. Who here knows where Manchester is? Yeah? Some of you? It's just south of Canal Fulton, just, just north of Canal Fulton, just south of Coventry. And Manchester is known for literally one thing and one thing only and that is football. And so as you notice, I did not state that football was one of the things I did in high school, but it was known for football. We had like a three-tier level football team. We had like 400 people in our school, right? So like I swear a quarter of our school was on the football team. And that means that the soccer team didn't really have that many people, right? Soccer, normally you have 11 people playing at any one time that are on the field, and it's really good to have substitutes and people to back them up because it is a tiring sport that you run for, right? Uh, but we had eight people on our entire team. So <laughs> we literally played eight versus 11 with no substitutes every time we played. It was wonderful and horrible and some of the best memories of my life. And I'm going to tell you one of my favorite soccer memories ever. And this is the story of the best game of soccer I ever played ever. So whenever I was a senior in high school, uh, I was playing a team that had a very, very, very good player on it. And this gentleman likely now is a pro soccer player because he was that good. If you know anything about soccer, how do the scores of soccer usually end up? Yeah. 1-0 is good. 2-0 is great. 3-0 is a blowout game, right? Oh my goodness. Three goals happened in a 45-minute period. That's some good soccer. This guy in our league was averaging three to four goals a game himself, is how good he was. Uh, he carried their team. We were the sixth team they played, and he had over 25 goals already in the season, okay? And he was playing against good teams. He wasn't playing against us, right? At this point, we knew he was coming, and we knew that he was the best player that literally any of us have ever seen. And so my coach knew that I was the guy who could run for the longest at the time, and the guy who was a perfect enough mixture of aggressively mean and stupid to try and keep up with this guy the whole game, okay? So I, he literally came to me and said, your job this entire game is just to make sure he does not score. Nothing else matters. I don't care what happens. 
make sure he doesn't score. And that was what happened, right? That was what the game, that was, what I, that was my entire job. That was it. And I kid you not, I did well this game. If you guys don't know me, I have asthma. I have trouble breathing sometimes. I get winded walking from the first floor of the church up to the third floor. I have to stop and take a breather sometimes. I'm like, okay, I'm here. But I sprinted like that entire game. Uh, anytime he would get the ball, I was mean. Uh, so usually you get the ball, someone kicks it to you, and the ball comes, and there's a defender behind you. And my entire job was, oh, the ball's coming to him. I come up, I grab one of his hips, and my leg is between his legs. Because then you can't go left or right. It's just stuck, right? Uh, he would try and turn and get around, and the goal was either the ball could get by or he could get by, not both, right? And I did so well this game. He got so mad at me, so <laughs> mad at me. That at one point, he was just like stomping around on the field and just like throwing a little bit of a tantrum. And strangely enough, a, a wasp landed on him, and I knocked it down, said, hold on a second, knocked it down and stepped on it. And he was like, thank you, because at that point, he realized it wasn't personal. I didn't want him to be harmed or hurt. I just didn't want him to score, right? So he wasn't mad at me anymore, but he was still quite upset about the way he was performing. He got mad enough, he eventually left his position, which was forward, and he ended up playing defense. He's like, I'm done. I'm just going to go back and play defense. He didn't score that game once. Best soccer game I ever played. And I remember it to this day, and it's basically my Al Bundy moment. You guys know that <laughs> show, like Al Bundy had the one game. That was my one game. This actually matters to the sermon, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. I promise we'll come back to it. But here's what we're preaching on today. Today's practical theology is practical church and the people of God. Yes, this actually will come around, I promise. Practical theology, practical church. And we're speaking of... As we work today, we've, uh, we've walked through a couple different aspects of Christianity. Brent's just shaking his head at me, which I very rightfully deserve in general as a human not even just right now. As we consider practical theology, one thing that we've worked through is what does it mean to tell people about Jesus? That's evangelism. What does it mean to take uh, responsibility over what Christ has given to us on his behalf? Stewardship. What does it mean to have to wrestle with sin in the way that it's like addiction? These are the things that we've talked about so far. Today we're talking about one of the most practical portions of practical theology is what is the church? Why does it matter? Who cares? right? What is the church? So we'll begin with this, the people of God. We can talk about whenever the church is purely instituted, though it has some echoes in the Old Testament. We can see in the New Testament whenever Christ put it into place. And we see this most perfectly in Matthew 16. And to give you the story of what's going on here, uh, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, and he asks his disciples, who do the people say I am? And they say, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah reborn, some say you're a good teacher, right? Some people say these things. Then Christ looks at them and says, who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter responds with, uh, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right? This is how Peter replies to him. And Jesus says, basically, right. Well done. Then he says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Next, please. 
and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one about this. Back to my notes. So, the church is something instituted by Christ. But before we dive even too far into that passage, let's just knock a couple things out of the way. We hear church, and what does church mean? Whenever I say to you, hey, I go to a church, what do you think it means? What do you think about? Good. You think about people. That's the right answer. What people often think of is, oh, there's a specific place I go to on a Sunday morning. A building, perhaps, often has a steeple, usually some big old crosses around, good light stage, someone talking a lot, probably too much, rambling about stupid stories of his past that have no, you know, no tie to what he's talking about today. Yeah, right? That kind of place. We often think about places as opposed to a group of people, right? This is so normal that even though one of the biggest points of my personal theology is that the church is not the place, the church is the people, people still ask me where I work, and I say, oh, I work over there at the church. That's the location I work at. Oh, what were you doing this past week? I was working on the church, meaning I was actually putting the building together. Oh, what are you doing? Having my office hours at the church. I still think of the church as a building in my brain, even though theologically I know it's not this place. We were the church where we met before. We are the church where we gather now, and we are the church whenever we gather wherever else we go. We will be the church whenever we are sitting at a bonfire. We're the church. The church is the people. The church is not a place. The church is the people, right? Fun story. The word church, uh, ecclesia, or ecclesia, those of you who enjoyed our mispronunciation that we had for years, means gathering or crowd. And actually, a gathering or a crowd that meet together for a purpose, right? Uh, this is most obviously seen in church gatherings or gatherings of a group of people to worship God. But the word ecclesia is used a bunch of times in Scripture for not that. Did you know that the crowd of people who are trying to stone Paul at one point where there's a big crowd surrounding him and they're all mad at him and they all want to kill him because of the stupid things he's saying, they were called an ecclesia because they were a group that was gathered together with a specific purpose, kill Paul, <laughs> right? So the word that is used for church, the word that is used for assembly is considering a group of people who are meeting together with a common purpose, why we exist. There's an actual reason why we gather, right? But gathering is a big part of it. And the church exists for three specific reasons. Who here can think about what the three reasons are why a church would exist? That is the first Sunday school answer that is completely appropriate. The church exists for Christ. We belong to him and we exist for his glory. Whenever we were looking at our first verse there, Christ literally says, I call you Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He is building it for himself. We are his. That's the obvious one that we need to remember. A church that gathers for any reason other than to worship Christ, it's kind of missing the point. It's, you know, if we're not glorifying him, we're not a church. We're a group of people meeting together for some other purpose. What's the next one? Huh? Thank you, each other. The church exists for the building up of each other, particularly the rest of the believers of Christ. We exist to edify each other. I can give you verses for this, but literally flip over to 
any one of the epistles, read through long enough, and at some point you'll read the words each other or one another, and you'll see that that's what Paul's talking about forever. There's like 96 different references of the New Testament of ways in which we are supposed to treat each other and how we're supposed to care for each other, build one another up, pour into each other, forgive one another, uh, goodness, uh, exercise discipline over one another. This one, I want to kick that one out here. We're just going to pause on that for just a second. This is what, one of the things that separates a church from a cult, right? In cults, the leadership can discipline the people, and that is it, right? In churches, any believer can help exercise discipline over any other believer, and so the people of the church uh, can help discipline anyone. When I say discipline, I don't mean punish. I mean help train or build up or teach or uh, at times correct, right? That means that as much as I or Jake or the elders of the church have a responsibility to exercise discipline over the church, you have an equal amount of responsibility to exercise discipline over the rest of the church and us, the leadership, right? You can discipline me, and at times you really should, right? Creed kind of did this whenever he pointed out to me a couple weeks ago that I was thinking about the church as the building I was working on and not caring about the people I was spending time on. He gently rebuked me and corrected me. He helped me exercise discipline in my life. Thank you for disciplining me. This is starting to sound weird, but I will say it forever, just so you know. What? Christy also disciplines me all the time, but she doesn't like me talking about her. Yeah, oh yeah, I should probably point out that Christy has been telling me this for literally the past like three years. And I came home like, honey, Creed said this awesome thing, and she's like, you dummy. And I deserve that, right? Right? That is me in a nutshell. Oh. We discipline each other. We care for one another. We build each other up. We proclaim the good news to one another. We bear each other's burdens. We call for each other to carry their own loads as well, right? We exist for each other, to edify each other, to build each other up into Christ-likeness and, in some respects, righteousness. Like, I cannot make you righteous, you cannot make me righteous, nor can I make me it or you make you it. But we can help uh, propel one another where Christ is making us, right? He's the one who does the making of righteousness. We can spur one another on in that. What's the third reason the church exists? ambassadors for him. We exist to influence the world on his behalf, to proclaim him to a world that desperately needs him, right? This is why Jesus in every one of the Gospels has at least one point where he tells the disciples, this is what you are going to go and do. You will proclaim me to a world. The biggest one is the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and earth have given, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Go forth, proclaim the good news, baptize, teach. Go and influence the world. Be my ambassador into a world that needs me. This is what the church is created to do. This is who we are supposed to be. So we have three purposes. We exist for Christ, we exist for each other, and we exist for the world. And we glorify God in all three of those aspects, right? This is what we exist for. Whenever we think of the church as well, do we think of small local places or one big overarching thing? How does Scripture teach about it? Trig question, both ways. Scripture mentions both, right? So Christ is going to build his church. The church at large is a thing. Uh, that's actually the note I was pulling up here. Boom. Where are you at here? Where are you at? Where are you at? 
No there? Not there? Not there? Not there? Not there? Sorry, my notes are coming, I promise. Oh, body of Christ, building temple, blah, blah, blah. Where's the universal part? You're in here. And it's gone. It's gone. My apologies. I have it. I don't know where my notes are right now. I told you this is gone. Church universal. Church nature and foundation. You're in there. My apologies. I'll be back. Just talk amongst yourselves for a second. Yeah, everyone just staring comfortably. Look at me. I am done. I'm not going to do this anymore. I promise. I had notes. They're sitting on my other computer, and they're gone forever. And it makes me a sad, sad panda. I don't know why I call myself a sad panda. But anywho, there are multiple places where we see the transcendence of the church. The church is one thing that is greater than or over and above all uh, just individual bodies of believers. But we also see multiple times whenever individual local churches are spoken of. The easiest place to see this is the beginning of Revelation. Remember it says the church of God in this city, the church of God in this city, the church of God in this city. Paul also speaks about churches relatively often. He would write to uh, people and proclaim, I proclaim to you the same thing I proclaim in all the churches. Do this thing. I had that note somewhere. It's gone now. My apologies. Paul mentions multiple individual bodies as churches. Whenever you go and you build up elders and you place elders, place elders into every individual church. We see that both are spoken of. The church is a universal thing. It is all believers forever. It is the church invisible. This is the church that is comprised of all of those who are followers of Christ throughout history, throughout time, throughout the world. Everyone who is his is a part of the church universal. And we will see what that looks like whenever he returns and we all get to worship him together. Right? It'll be wonderful to watch and see the ways in which it will break down all barriers and divisions and denominations and everything that we see that has the church broken up into a bunch of little pieces will be broken down and gone. It will be beautiful. I cannot wait to see that great heavenly assembly worshiping God together. There's also local churches who proclaim to exist and tell Christ about the world. Tell the world about Christ. (laughs) Backwards. Tell the world about Christ in local areas. To the cities they live in to the people that they work with, to the people that they are comprised of. And fun story, local churches can have believers and non-believers in them because I can't know the heart of everyone who's sitting in a room. We're all gathered together. Probably one of us is an unbeliever, which is awesome. Let's talk about Jesus, right? We are the church. We are what can be seen of the church. Every other gathering that exists in the world is what can be seen of the church. Every other church gathering in the world, anything that gathers to glorify Christ is a part of his church and exists to glorify him in local areas, right? But you know how we talked about the fact that the church exists for these three purposes? There's more to it than that. Do you guys know just how much God values or Christ values the church? Do you know that Christ calls the church, or God calls the church, the fullness of Christ? Let me read you this verse real quick. All right. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. There is this big buildup of what the church is and what is happening and who 
Christ is and what he's made Christ to do. And the end portion of it is Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And it says, and he put, and he, God, put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Christ fills all in all. He is everything, and we are part of his fullness. That's really cool. It is a huge thing. He who fills everything does so through us. He uses us to do it. He uses us to carry him to places where people don't listen to him. He's there, obviously, but if they're choosing not to listen, he can use us to carry him there. He uses us to proclaim him in areas that are currently not under, uh, I don't say not submitting to Christ. Does that make sense? What else is it that the church is? Uh, this is how Peter actually, or Peter, yeah, actually speaks about the church and what we are as his. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Do you guys remember a long time ago whenever we read the book of Hosea? Yeah? The Minor Prophets? Anyone who's here for that? Did you? How wonderful was that sermon series? Whoo! That's great. But there's a book in, of Hosea, and one of my favorite sections of the book of Hosea is a point whenever God calls for Hosea to name his children, and one child is named No Mercy, and one child is named Not My People. And then further on in the book, uh, God says to Hosea, and I will say to no mercy, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and they will respond, you are my God. I love that section of that book. I say that for this reason. In the end of that first Peter verse I just said, it says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church itself is the fulfillment of that verse. We were those who were not his who are now his. We were those who did not deserve mercy who now have mercy. This is what he has done for us, his church. It's beautiful and wonderful. But a couple more things. Back to the verse I had, if you wouldn't mind. Kick it back up there. So whose church is it? Jesus's, right? Yeah. Who, who will build it? Yeah, Christ builds it. We sometimes think, go ahead and kick back. We're not on that part yet. Come on, Brent. Thank you. <laughs> we sometimes think that we have a large role to play in building his church, right? We think about the fact that we, if we just do things perfectly enough or right enough, if I just have the best sermons or if we just have the best worship or if we have the best lighting effects or if we just have the best outreach ministries, we just have the best missional communities, we'll be building up the church well right? And that is giving ourselves far too much credit because we don't build the church. We worship Christ. We listen to what he calls us to do, but he builds it. In the book of Acts, whenever believers are added to the people daily, Peter sits and proclaims the gospel to people from all the nations, and he tells of who Jesus is and what he's done. And we hear a little bit further down as a summary of that entire section, and the Lord added 3,000 people that day. Not Peter, the Lord did, right? He is the one who actually called the people to himself. So we can't mistake who does the work of building the church. Whenever we are talking about building the church, what we're talking about is basically praying that we can be submitted enough to Christ's will that he would use us in however way he wants to and that he would do the work of building it. 
So prayer, obviously, a huge part of building up the church. I say this, please pray for the church. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, thank you. Pray for me, just in general. Okay. But here's another fun thing. Sometimes in our day and age, we consider the church to be on the defensive, right? Oh, everything's broken. The world is trying to break the church. Oh, my goodness. People say happy holidays instead of Christmas. We're at war, right? Ridiculous, first of all, throwing that out there. Uh, We talk as if the church is a thing under siege, hunkered down, and we're just trying to survive an onslaught of the world, right? Who here has seen or heard the church talked about in this way? Yeah, pretty much everybody? Yeah. So check this out. I call you Peter, and on this rock I will my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we talk about that. Yeah, we're at war. The gates of hell won't prevail against it, so we have to protect ourselves. Yeah, gates aren't an offensive weapon. Gates are defensive. We are not the ones who are hiding and broken and worried that we're going to be overrun. We're the ones doing the overrunning through Christ and his power. Hell can't prevail against what Christ is doing in the church. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the things of the world. We don't have to be afraid of the way nations are going. We don't have to be afraid. We know Christ will win. This is our assurance. Even more. I'm going to quote a couple of people now that are worth remembering. We talked about the purpose of the church a little bit but it's worth hammering in just how important the church is. Uh, so a couple of people that we like. We, we like uh, C.S. Lewis, right? You guys like C.S. Lewis? I enjoy C.S. Lewis. Uh, where are my photos? Sweet. Are you in here? Are you in here? Nope, nope. All right. I'm going to go straight to the other guy, which is the Archbishop of Canterbury, because he also says the same thing in a different way. The Archbishop of Canterbury says, oh, no, it's up here. Ha, C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest theologians of recent times. I'm stealing this directly from a book. I did not even make up that sentence. Right? Yeah. Took a crack at answering this question. He said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw people into Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became human for no other purpose. This is why he became human, to call the world to himself. Archbishop of Canterbury, who's, you know, a little different than C.S. Lewis, said this. First, the church exists to worship God and Jesus. Second, the church exists to make new disciples of Jesus. Everything else is decoration. Some of it may be very necessary, useful, or wonderful decoration, but it's decoration. We exist to proclaim Christ, to build others up in Him, and to glorify Him through it. This is why we exist. One more thing, though. And this is where it all comes back together. This is where that story I told at the beginning actually matters, right? The church. Assembly. Gathering. How easy is it for one person to gather? Or for one person to assemble? You can't. By its very nature... It implies multiple people together. Gathering together to proclaim Christ. 
we see this from the beginning of creation. Man was created, and everything prior to man's creation was declared good. And man was created, and God's words are not, it is good, but it is not good for man to be alone. We are created to exist within relationships. We are created to exist within groups of people. Our nature at times, because we are sinful people, fights against that concept. It is much easier at times to be alone and not have to deal with other people's um, doohickey, crap, whatever. I'm trying to say not bad words. It's easy to want to hide and not deal with other people. It's hard to pour in effectively to other people. But we are created to be with other people. We are created to be around other people, to proclaim him. That game that I talked about where I did so good, guys, we lost so bad. <laughs> so bad. I think we lost five or six to zero. Because it doesn't matter how well I did on my own. Soccer is not a personal or individualized sport. He didn't matter alone to his team, nor did I matter alone to mine. Because his team fulfilled their purpose, getting that ball in the goal and stopping ours from getting into theirs. And our team did not. Ladies and gentlemen, life is not an individualized sport. Life is a team sport. You can do so well on your own and put everything together and fulfill what you need to do perfectly by yourself. But if you don't do it as part of your team, as part of your group, that team may still lose really won't because we're going to crash the gates of hell. But still, right? We're actually going to lose, but still. We can use things for ourselves or we can use things as a part of a whole. Fun story as well. The church has three purposes, right? To glorify Christ, we exist for him, to proclaim the good news to the world, and to build up each other, right? This is why the church exists. Anyone here know what the three enemies of the people of God are? In Scripture, there's three things that Paul and Jesus talk about us contending against all the time. The flesh, so ourselves, our individual selves, right? The part of me that is sinful and does not want to obey Christ, the part of me that is carnal, that wants to do what I want and not what he wants. We fight against that. We contend against ourselves. Satan, right? We fight against spiritual forces that are not of this world. Right? We fight against those who wish to overcome the work that Christ is doing. Spoiler alert, they lose, but we still contend against them, right? And what's the third one? You just said it. The world. We have three things that we as individuals have to work against as followers of Christ. And strangely enough, the church exists to strengthen the exact opposite of those things we fight against, right? We fight against Satan. We glorify Christ. Satan's not going to win. <laughs> Christ wins. But he's still, we have one who we contend for and one that we contend against. The world, as the church, we fight to influence the world to Christ and to proclaim him to it while contending against a world that wants to influence us to not be like him. Right? And man, those match up so well. Here's the interesting thing. The third thing that we fight against is ourselves. 
what we're supposed to be fighting for is each other. Isn't that fun? We fight against ourselves, and we're supposed to be fighting for each other. You can contend against your flesh and do well against it. That's fine. But if all you're doing is making yourself better, you kind of miss the purpose of why we exist. Because we don't just exist for our own benefit. We exist to glorify Christ through building up others and proclaiming him to the world. Amen? Yeah. Life is a team sport. Help out your team. Seriously, we had eight people on our soccer team. It's very hard to win soccer games with eight people. The church has many people who are building into it, who have different roles to play within it, who are called to do different things in service of Christ through it. We're not all made to be the same person. Not everyone is an offensive person. Not everyone is a defender. We all have different roles to play. It's far easier for the church to fulfill the mission Christ has called us to if all those positions are filled. Does that make sense? Now again, if you don't, I'm not worried about the church because Jesus will build it and Jesus will protect it and he will allow it to overrun the gates of hell. And we know that he wins. But I mean, it's, you know, a lot less grueling of a game if we're all working at it together. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm going to bring back one thing we talked about about three weeks ago. We mentioned the fact that as followers of Christ, as his body, one of the things that we are called to do is to help bring his kingdom to the world, right? He is bringing his kingdom, he has instilled his kingdom, and one day his kingdom will be fully made manifest, and the goal of the church during this time is to continue to allow that kingdom to be made more and more manifest until he comes and does it perfectly, right? So if his kingdom is going to be a kingdom wherein the people are able to rest, how are we doing at helping calling people to rest? If his kingdom is a place of peace, how are we doing about being people of peace? If his kingdom is a place where everyone knows Christ, how are we doing at telling people about Jesus? Right? And then I asked you, what do you think the world is going to look like whenever the kingdom is fully realized? What do you think it'll look like when the kingdom is fully realized? How will it affect you, the church as a whole, and the places we live? You guys remember whenever I asked that? Pass out some papers? Do you want to know how many responses I've gotten back so far? Boop. Not a one. Here's why I want to know this, guys, because we as a local body of the church, we cannot and are not supposed to do everything. I can't make everything happen. You can't make everything happen in the world. Uh, the church as a whole is what Christ is using to proclaim himself and to build his world, right? But I want to know what part we're supposed to play in his building. And one way we can see that is to see how we are all passionate about what Christ is doing. What is it that we see and that we look forward to whenever he returns? I'll tell you one of mine. The biggest one of mine is honestly peace and the end of uh, rancorous conflict. I look forward to whenever he restores pure peace. Which is funny because I'm really bad at being a peaceful person. <laughs> Super bad at it, guys. I don't do well. 
that that shows me if that's what I look forward to and want to see whenever Christ returns. And that's probably one place that I can be working within my own life and that you as a church can help build me up so that that would be something that I display to the world for his glory. It's one place where you can help me in discipline, where you can help me grow. Hey, Chris, you're supposed to be a person of peace. Why are you being a jerk? Jake is really good at asking that question. Super good. I'd like the rest of you to be as well. So think upon this, consider it, and then start emailing me or texting me and calling me what you think because I'd love to see what you want to see whenever Christ returns. Make sense? Okay. Let's take a moment. Let's pray together. Let's spend some more time worshiping our Lord. Then we're going to partake in communion together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you have instituted your church and you are building your church. And because of you and your power, you will allow the church to fulfill the purpose you gave to it. That you will use us to crash the gates of hell, to overcome sin and death and darkness. We pray for the fact that you have overcome them by your body, by your sacrifice, by your blood. We praise you for the fact that you have broken them by your life whenever you came back to life. Thank you for resurrecting and defeating death for all time. Lord God, use us to grow closer to you. Use us to proclaim you to a world that needs you. Use us to build each other up. And Lord God, use us for your glory. We want to glorify you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So you... uh challenged me to bring up that cup today. I was just like trying not to spill it the whole way up, but I uh, uh, guess the uh, cup overflows, right? Um, but yeah, during uh, the time of communion, we try to use it as a time to reflect, a time to consider what we just talked about, what Chris just spoke on, the fact that Christ is the head and we are the body of the church. Uh, and just as much as that grape juice almost poured over, this is what Christ did. He broke himself and he poured himself out on our behalf. And What's interesting, and even based off of what Chris just talked about, how the church exists to glorify God, that it exists to have community. But what's interesting about our faith, what's interesting about our God, is that he doesn't just demand these things, he is these things. When you think about Trinity, God in himself has relation with himself, in himself glorifies himself, and in himself pours himself out into the world. Our God just existing, and existing for all time, demonstrates, demonstrates this just as he is. Hence the I am. You have no authority over me, but I, I'll meet you there in a way that only he can relate to us and in a way that uh, we need each other because we aren't God-like. We, we aren't demigods, you know, so we need each other. But in doing so, we can glorify God who glorifies himself. And it's also interesting, too, is like through, I've gone through this week, like, and I talked about last week during communion, um, one of the things I struggle with is I'm, I'm very good at being alone. I'm very good at... Um, having my time just reflect and deal with my own emotions and not putting my emotions onto other people because their responses I don't have control over, but my responses, I can know the negative, I can know the positive, I can know the outcome. But as Chris just mentioned, that's a flaw in me too. And as we go into the world, we need to not look at it as a us versus them mentality, but see them the way that Christ gave himself on our behalf, how he lowered himself to be there for us, that he took on the flesh and, and lived a life that he didn't deserve to die for, 
for us. And this is how we have to approach the world, to see them as people, to see them as image bearers of God, to recognize that God can speak wisdom through them just as he did a donkey. I mean, this week, someone that wouldn't profess themselves to be a Christian challenged me on that and said that if your family, how are you having community? How are you loving them? And yeah, I sucked at that. I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't have it all. I'm still learning it. But it's through that that we can grow. If I'm supposed to be transformed by Christ, there has to be areas to be transformed. And that happens by collectively having community, by collectively being the body and being broken for those around us. So as you come up for community today, I ask that you would reflect on that. Have the ears to see when John the Baptist approaches you or when a Moses approaches you or when someone representing Christ approaches you, that you don't kill them like we did all the prophets, that we don't crucify them like we did Christ but we recognize that. And so here at City, we... Yeah, that, that's also a good thing, too. Yeah, killing people just isn't good. But, uh, but as you participate in communion, as you reflect during this time, uh, we, we do it this way at City Church in the fact that Christ presents himself to you broken and poured out already. But you still have to take the step to come to him. There still is this, this go pattern, this Abraham walking with God, going back and forth. Um, we do ask that if you're not a Christian, you do not participate in communion. Um, and if you'd like to talk more about it, that'd be awesome. But this is for believers of any creed, whether Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Evangelical, whatever denomination, as long as you believe that Christ is who he says he is, that he lived the life that he did, that he was born in the nature that he was, that miraculous, radical way that he was, that he was crucified, and that he resurrected and will return again. We want you to participate in communion with us. And we want you to be a part of this church with us. And we recognize that even though this is a city church time of communion, there's the collective church as well. That the church across the world is participating. That the people before us, the saints before us, participate in this. And so when you're ready, please feel to come up and participate in communion with us.